Okay, great. Um, today, we're going to be studying the Parsha that we studied on Shvat. And it was a double Parsha. The first one is called Achrei Mot, which means after the death. It's talking about after the death of Aaron's sons. And the next Parsha is called Kedushim, which means holiness, as Hashem is holy. So these two parshot actually really do mesh together well. It's a lot of material. It's very, very long. So I'm going to tr- skip over a few things. I beg your indulgence with this, but I do want to get to the things that I think are very, very pertinent to B'nai Noah. So I'm going to just kind of glaze over some of the other things, like... Um, the responsibilities of the Kohen Gadol on Yom Kippur and so on. I'm going to kind of skip over that. But I encourage everybody to read this from the written Torah. And we are going to read it from the written Torah and then not quite go into all of the explanation, maybe. Now, the main thing that we are supposed to learn from Achrei Mot, after the death, is the reason, it's the lesson that came out of this tragedy of Aaron's two sons. Aaron's two sons, um, Nadav and Avihu. Now what did they do? They were very, very zealous to worship Hashem. They wanted to be the priest. They wanted to be the Kohen Gadol. They wanted to be the priest. They wanted to actually even take the place of Aaron and Moshe. And when we get to the Parsha where it, where this is really dealt with what happened, we're going to go into it in more detail than I am right now. But suffice it to say, they made a very, very big mistake. Now, they were zealous and their hearts were in the right place. They did everything for the right motives. Just like we always hear people say, their hearts are in the right place. They did everything for the right motives. Yet, Hashem killed them. They died. And why? Why was that? Because he had given instruction of how to do these rituals in a specific way. And the sons of Aaron, here at the dedication of the Mishkan, no less, at the dedication of the tabernacle, decided that they were going to do things their own way. And from this, we get some very, very big lessons. So, we begin the Parsha, Achrei Mot, in the 16th chapter of Leviticus, in the first verse. And it's interesting that this is the way that this, the Parsha that talks about Yom Kippur is introduced. Because Yom Kippur can be a little bit difficult for people to understand. The Day of Atonement. So we're going to begin with the first verse. Hashem spoke to Moses after the death of Aaron's two sons when they approached before Hashem and they died. And Hashem said to Moses, Speak to Aaron your brother. He shall not come up at all times into the sanctuary within the curtain, in front of the cover that is upon the ark, 
so that he should not die. For in a cloud will I appear upon the ark cover. With this shall Aaron come into the sanctuary with a young bull for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall don sacred linen tunic. Linen breeches shall be upon his flesh. He shall gird himself with a linen sash and cover his head with a linen turban. They are sacred vessels. He shall immerse himself in water and then don them. From the assembly of the children of Israel, he shall take two he-goats for a sin offering, one ram for a burnt offering. Now this is the introduction of this Parsha. And it begins with after the death. So you're thinking, first you're reminded that Aaron's sons died. And then you start getting all this detail of instruction of what Aaron is supposed to do. And so it brings us to this lesson of the death of these two sons of Aaron. That the instructions, the details of the instructions were very, very specific. Hashem said, this is exactly the way you're supposed to do it. You're not supposed to get carried away with ecstasy and decide that you're going to do something in your own way as it feels good. You're not supposed to be carried away with being moved by the Spirit as we hear all the time. Remember? You, you hear that all the time from people that they're moved by the Spirit to do things. Well, where ordinary people might get away with that. People in this position could not. It had to be very, very specific because he was in a very high position. He was representing all of the people of Israel before Hashem. And so he said, and each time you'll see, when you read the written Torah, each time you'll see where, he, where Hashem will say, so you will not die. So you will not die. He will give instruction and then you notice when you read this that he says, so you will not die. And that's really important for us to understand that even if we were not killed because we did something our own way, that there is a violation, that there is that this is something important that Hashem is saying here. He's setting a precedent here. That people who were on this very, very high level, they were responsible for these specifics that they could die. If they did not do it in the right way, they could die. But that's a lesson for all of us that when we follow the instructions of the Torah that it's not pick one from here and pick one from there and decide how we're going to do it that there are certain ways that Hashem has laid down for us to follow his instructions and even if we don't die because we're not on that high enough level to be responsible like that it's still important for us to understand that when he gave instructions, specific instructions, that there was a reason. That it wasn't for us to just go, oh, I don't feel like doing it that way. I'm going to do it my own way. Oh, this is boring. I'm just going to do it my own way. And we get that lesson here. Now, why am I bringing all of this up? I'm bringing all of this up because... Throughout the centuries, there have been different groups of people who have wanted to do things their own way. 
And um, one of these groups of people are called the Karaites. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever heard of this group of people who are a, they're a sect of Judaism. Now, the Karaites believe that they only need to keep the written Torah and they don't need to pay attention to the oral Torah. They believe that only the written Torah came down from Sinai, from heaven, and the, written, and the oral Torah is just the opinion of the rabbis. Does that sound familiar? Well, this kind of thinking has trickled into other sects, other religions, even. It's trickled into the thinking of, of non-Jewish people as well. Now, 2,000 years ago, during the time of the Second Temple, there were two main sects of Judaism. One was called the Sadducees. I'm sure you're familiar with that term. And these were mainly the aristocracy of the temple. And the other group was called the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the rabbis of the yeshivot, of the synagogues in the various villages. These were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were the ones who, after the destruction of the temple, codified the oral law. So there were these two groups. Now, the Pharisees were the forerunners of rabbinical Judaism. And the Sadducees were the forerunners of the Karaites. And you probably have heard some of the ideas of the Karaites. And first of all is that the written Torah is the only thing that really matters and that the oral Torah is only the opinion of man. Well, this isn't this is not true and this has caught a lot of people into trouble with this kind of attitude and this class that I'm teaching here is talking about the levels of Torah how the levels of Torah come down and how we need all of these levels of Torah in order for us to learn fully about the Torah and the written Torah tells us what what, God, what Hashem said to us what God told us to do what the instruction is and then you have Mishnah. You have the more oral Torah that tells you how to do it. And it's no good for us to be told what if we don't know how. And then you'll have more esoteric writings that give you the why. So you have the whole broad spectrum and it's all Torah. But with the mindset of the Karaites, of the Sadducees, they thought only the written Torah mattered. And this got them into quite a bit of trouble. And I'm going to go into that with the, with the Parsha in a little while. But I first wanted you to be aware of these groups. And this is going to come up a little bit later. But first we're going to go into um, more of what happened on Yom Kippur. So we're starting with verse 6. Aaron shall bring near his own sin offering bull and provide atonement for himself and his household he shall take the two he goats and stand them before Hashem at the entrance of the tent of the meeting Aaron shall place lots upon the two he goats one lot for Hashem and one lot for Azazel 
Aaron shall bring near the he-goat designated by Lot for Hashem and make it a sin offering. And the he-goat designated by Lot for Azazel shall be stood alive before Hashem to provide atonement through it, to send it to Azazel in the wilderness. Aaron shall bring near his own sin offering bull and he shall provide atonement for himself and for his household. Then he shall slaughter his own sin offering bull. He shall take a shovelful of fiery coals from atop the altar that is before Hashem and his cupped hands full of fine, finely ground incense spices and bring it within the curtain. He shall bring place the incense upon the fire before Hashem so that the cloud of incense shall blanket the ark cover that is atop the tablets of the testimony so that he shall not die and you notice this so he shall not die he shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle with his forefinger upon the eastern front of the ark cover and in front of the ark cover he shall sprinkle seven times from the blood with his forefinger he shall slaughter the sin offering he goat for the people and bring its blood within the curtain he shall do with its blood as he had done with the blood of the bull and sprinkle it upon the ark cover and in front of the ark cover. Thus shall he provide atonement upon the sanctuary for the contaminations of the children of Israel, even for the rebellious sins among all their sins. So shall he do for the tent of the meeting that dwells with them amid their contamination. Any person shall not be... Any person shall not be in the tent of the meeting when he comes to provide atonement in the sanctuary until his departure he shall provide atonement for himself and for his household and for the entire congregation of Israel so he had to first provide a sacrifice for himself as the priest and then he would provide the sacrifice for the people of Israel in other words he could not come as a representative of the people of Israel until he himself was cleansed so he had to be cleansed first then he had to cleanse his family and then he had to then he was ready to come as a representative of the people of Israel but there's something very interesting here when we look at the preparations where we where the priest was going to bring this um where he was going to bring the incense now this was one of the most difficult rituals of the high priest because he was required to fill the gold pan with glowing coals from the exterior altar then he was handed a vessel containing the incense from which he scooped incense with both hands. He then transferred these two hands full of incense to a spoon, took the pan containing the coals in his right hand and the spoon in his left and entered the Holy of Holies. He put down the pan with the coals between the poles of the Aaron. And in the second temple, there was no Aaron. And so he would put it on the stone where the Aaron, where the uh, ark had rested. Then he seized the edge of the spoon containing the incense with either his fingertips or his teeth 
to keep both hands free. And he poured the incense back into his hands. And then he, he would have to light it in the Holy of Holies. And this was the way it was supposed to be done. Now remember we were saying that there was a sect of called the Sadducees. And they did not always want to do things according to the way it was told how to do it. So they looked at this and they did not see the instruction how to do it. So it was easier for them, it was an easier way to light the incense outside the Holy of Holies and then go inside. Now this is an example. And so this was the way they ruled that it was the proper way to do it, to light it outside and then go inside with it already lit. But this is considered a um, an affront. This is considered breaking the law of the high priest. So there is a, a story in the Midrash, in the Talmud, about one of these Sadducees who happened to, at the time, be the high priest. He was the Kohen Gadol. And he realized that he had an opportunity to do the ritual in the way that was their tradition. But his father told him, no, even though we are Sadducees, we respect the sages. But the son was saying, how could I relinquish this opportunity for which I'd waited all my life to fulfill the Torah as it's interpreted by us. And the, and the story goes that he, on Yom Kippur, did it his own way. He lit the incense outside the Holy of Holies, and then he went inside. And in that same year, he was found dead because he had inhaled the scent he, had, he was found dead on a garbage heap with worms, and it, it sounds disgusting, I'm sorry, but it's important, with worms crawling out of his nostrils. And it was what we call Mida Kanegmida because he had inhaled the incense that was only supposed to be in the Holy of Holies. He had inhaled it in the wrong place. And you remember when Aaron's sons were killed. This is the way the Parsha begins. Ahre Hamot. After the death, when Aaron's sons died, they were offering up incense. In a way, they were offering up strange fire. In a way that was not permitted. So here is a story, once more, of one of these Sadducees who is offering up this incense. It's a very, very important thing. When Hashem says, this is the way it's supposed to be done, that it, we don't decide, well, that's inconvenient for me, I don't like doing it that way, it, what does it matter anyway, I'm going to do it my own way. And that's the lesson of the death of Aaron's sons. And this is a very, very important lesson, because like I said, this kind of attitude has trickled down into... It trickled into sects of Judaism that became other religions, and it's um and it's a very dangerous thing. And this parsha stresses how dangerous that is by saying, "So you will not die." After each thing, 
where Hashem says, this is the way you do it. Do it exactly like I say. So you will not die. And there are a lot of things in this Parsha that we think, well, what is the difference? What is the difference if I mix wool and linen? I mean, what difference does that make? What could that hurt? But yet, it is a written law. And then you have the oral law that talks about how to search for it, how to make sure you don't have those mixtures together. And we're going to go into that more in a little while. But all of these things are mysteries. And as far as how this applies to B'nai Noah, I think that's kind of obvious. Because, like I said, a lot of this has trickled into the thinking of the people in the nations. Well, it doesn't matter how we come to Hashem. I move by the Spirit, and so I'm going to do it like this. Well, it does matter. And there is Torah for the people of the nation. It does matter. I mean, a lot of people have violated the laws of Noah, not realizing it does matter if you eat blood. It does. The Torah even says, do not do this. But when we deviate from the more subtle things, then we start becoming lax on things that are not so subtle, that are more obvious. And that's the point. That if we want to live lives of holiness, that we have to do things in the right way. So the next thing was about this goat of Azazel. And this is another thing, the scapegoat. You're familiar with that term, the scapegoat. This is another thing that a lot of people have really misunderstood. What was that? And I'll tell you, when I was in Israel, I went to this place called Azazel. And it's a place that is next to a city named Mali Adamim. And it's within sight of the Temple Mount. You can stand on Azazel and you can look at the Temple Mount. So, the goat was to be sent to Azazel. So, there's a question. Why would we have exactly what was this goat? What was this sacrifice? The other sacrifice, the goat that says to Hashem, that's, that's real clear. This is the goat that is going to be sacrificed in a normal way. And that's real clear. But the goat to Azazel was not so clear. Exactly what was that? Well, first of all, we're going to think about how that, was, how that sacrifice was made. The Kohen Gadol would rest his hands between the horns of the living goat that was designated for Azazel. And he would utter this confession for the sins of the entire people and then there would be a man who would lead this goat to Azazel he would lead him out into the wilderness so he would go out of the gate of the temple and out of the gate of the city and at that time according to um, the Talmud there was a bridge between the temple mount and the mount of Olives so he would lead him across the mount, this bridge and he would go and there would be Sukkot. There would be little huts all along the way 
where people would offer this man drinks because it's hot. It's young people, but believe me, every year somehow the temperature just goes up. And so it was usually hot. And they would offer him water and he was permitted to drink. But according to tradition, um, the tradition that we know, none of these men ever drank the water. They, they refused. And they would leave the goat. Now, this man would die, would normally, he would die in this year. This was a function that was, because they knew this man is going to die in this year when he would leave the goat to Azazel, they would choose somebody who was destined. And they would know, Kabbalistically, they would know if this person was destined to die in this year. So it wasn't going to be somebody that his destiny was going to change. It was somebody who was already going to die in this year. And this was, even though this man is going to die in this year, I mean, think about this in a different way from what we normally think. This was not a punishment. His life, his purpose in life was finished. And this was going to be one last act, a really special act that he was performing for all of the people of Israel, leading this goat to Azazel. So what is the significance of this goat? And this is a very mystical thing. And this is something that is called, in Hebrew, it is called a chuk. It's one of the laws that is difficult to understand, and it's not, we're not really given an explanation. So, the term, we can see it, one thing in the term, azazel. Azaz means strong, and el means mighty. So these are two terms, mighty and strong. So the goat is being taken to this place that is like the mighty rock, mighty and strong. And in the Gemara, there's another explanation that Azazel is a composite of the names of two angels named Aza and Azael uh, who were who came to earth in human form before the flood and they had said to Hashem look at these people they sinned and and they're weak and if we were human beings we wouldn't do that so Hashem said okay fine you're going to get your chance to prove it so they came to, to the earth in human form and their depravity surpassed that of the generation of the flood. They were even worse than human beings. And so this is another, um, another thing that is implied by this goat, Azazel, that it is to achieve atonement for all these sins of immorality, like those of Aza and Azael. And then there's another another interpretation that Azazel represents the Satan or, or a demon. Now, this is where the Jewish people are sometimes wrongly and, and I'm underlining wrongly accused of making a sacrifice to Hasbashalom, the Satan. And this is not true at all. So don't even consider that as being true. It's not. But 
We're told that on the day of the giving of the Torah, the Satan complained that Hashem had granted the power over the nation, granted him power over all the nations except for Israel, except for the Jewish people. And so Hashem said, okay, I'll give you dominion over them on Yom Kippur, provided you can find sins among them. And in order to prevent the Satan from accusing on Yom Kippur, Hashem ordered that he be won over by a bride. Now, how do we understand that? And this is the, the goat. Now, how do we understand that? Well, we understand it like this. The goat is termed Sa'ir, which means hairy. This is the term for a goat. Now, this is an allusion to Esau, who was born hairy. So on Yom Kippur, the Almighty symbolically places all the transgressions of Kalal Israel, of the people of Israel, on this hairy one, on this, on this um, representative, the symbol of this, the man that this goat represents. And we know that Esau was a very wicked person. So he's shifting the attention of the Satan. And again, this is only symbolic. This is not to be taken literally. And this is uh, Midrash. This is an example of Midrash that is not supposed to be taken literally, but you can glean something from it. That he's diverting the attention of the Satan, who would be the accuser in the court of heaven, to something that reminds him of something that is truly guilty. And diverting his attention from those people who are actually repenting at the time. So that's um, that's a that's a little bit difficult to understand, and that's kind of a it's kind of an explanation there. I hope that is if you ever wondered about it, that gives you some idea about the scapegoat. It's not, it's not what people have thought. A lot of times people get these ideas and it's not what people have thought. And so then, on Yom Kippur, in our services now, we sing about the beauty of the Kohen Gadol and how, how magnificent he was, how he was this, um, this lovely sight on Yom Kippur. And I'm going to just read this, the words to this song that are sung about the Kohen Gadol because he's standing in this place he's making he's pleading for all of the people he's making a plea for us that our sins are forgiven and so he is like he normally wears gold but on this day he's not going to wear gold because why? It would remind the heavenly court of the sin of the golden calf so in this day, he wears white. So he looks like an angel. He doesn't look human anymore. He looks like an angel. He looks like one of the celestial beings. So this is the song. Like the firmament shining to the celestial beings above was the Kohen Gadol's appearance. Like lightning flashing from the angels called Chayot was the Kohen Gadol's appearance. Like the sky blue... Co- 
tzakelet, threads worn into the woven into the four tzitzit fringes, was the Kohen Gadol's appearance. Like the image of the rainbow in the clouds was the Kohen Gadol's appearance. Like the glory with which the Creator clothed the first beings, Adam and Hava, was the Kohen Gadol's appearance. Like a rose blooming in a lovely garden was the Kohen Gadol's appearance. Like a wreath encircling a king's forehead was the Kohen Gadol's appearance. Like the grace bestowed upon the Hazans, that's the the bridegroom's countenance, was the Kohen Gadol's appearance. Like the radiance emanating from a pure crown was the Kohen Gadol's appearance. Like Moshe Rabbeinu, when he entered the Almighty, concealed upon, entreated the Almighty, concealed upon Har Sinai for forty days, was the Kohen Gadol's appearance. Like the star Noga, which is Venus, in the Eastern Hemisphere, was the Kohen Gadol's appearance. So this is a song that we sing on Yom Kippur, and of course you know that on Yom Kippur we have laws that um, forbid us to eat we fast completely this is the people of Israel and we've always done this from the time that the law was given we abstain from work just like on Shabbat and we do not wear leather we do not um, wash for enjoyment we do not wear cosmetics or perfume and we do not partake in marital relations so it is a day called a total complete fast and that is the main focus of this parsha of Ahre Mot So, I'm going to skip over now because I want to, because I told you it's going to be very, very long if I don't skip over. And so I'm going to skip over some things. Now, in the 18th chapter is a list of forbidden relationships. And I'm going, to re- I'm going to read all of these forbidden relationships because there is a... Well, I'll tell you why in, when I get down to the bottom. So we're to the 18th chapter, and we're going to read all of it. Hashem spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, I am Hashem, your God. Do not perform the practice of the land of Egypt in which you dwelled, and do not perform the practice of the land of Canaan to which I bring you, and do not follow their traditions. Carry out my laws and safeguard my decrees to follow them. I am Hashem, your God. You shall observe my decrees, my laws, which man shall carry out and by them which he shall live I am Hashem 
Now in the book, in the Parsha of Kiddushim, we go into more things that are definitions of holiness. But the forbidden relationships are also definitions of holiness. Now, at the end of this, he talks about the behavior of the people of the Canaanite nations. And all of these things that they did that were considered abomination. And we have to think, if these people did things that were considered abomination, then these things should be forbidden to all people of the world. And that's why this is important. This list is important. So starting with verse 6, Any man shall not approach his close relative to uncover nakedness. I am Hashem. The nakedness of your father, the nakedness of your mother, you shall not uncover. She is your mother. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's wife, you shall not uncover. It is your father's shame. The The nakedness of your sister, whether your father's daughter or your mother's daughter, whether born to one who may remain in home or born to one who must remain outside of it, you shall not uncover their nakedness. So these are laws about incest. This defines incest. The nakedness of your son's daughter or your daughter's daughter, you shall not uncover their nakedness, for they are your own shame. So your grandchildren. This is incest. The nakedness of your father's wife's daughter, who was born to your father, she is your sister. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your father's sister you shall not uncover. She is your father's flesh. The nakedness of your mother's sister you shall not uncover, for she is your mother's flesh. So this is your aunt's. The nakedness of your father's brother you shall not uncover. Do not approach his wife. She is your aunt. So your uncles, your aunts. The nakedness of your daughter-in-law you shall not uncover. She is your son's wife. You shall not uncover her nakedness. The nakedness of your brother's wife you shall not uncover. It is your brother's shame. The nakedness of a woman and her daughter you shall not uncover. You shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are close relatives. It is a depraved plot. You shall not take a woman in addition to her sister to make them rivals to uncover the nakedness of one upon the other in her lifetime. So there is a condition here that after the wife's death, then a man could marry her sister, but not while she is alive. You shall not approach a woman in her time of unclean separation to uncover her nakedness. You shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to contaminate yourself with her. So this is also talking about um, the time of menstrual period that a person, that people are not supposed to come together during that time. You shall not present any of your children to pass through for Moloch and do not profane the name of your God. I am Hashem. So this is, and it's interesting that this is listed that the prohibition against passing your children through the fire of Moloch is listed along with the sexual sins. So this idolatry and sexual sins, they go together. There is something similar to them. 
Um, now I'm going to go to now I'm going to stop right here for just one moment and talk about this for just a moment in the land of Israel as it says the nations were punished by being spewed out and we get that at the end of this passage the, the nations were spewed out of the land and we see this kind of punishment for these sins this whole list of sins of incest of um, passing your children through the fire of Moloch of bestiality all of these things that were abominations before the face of Hashem that the nations of Canaan were spewed out of the land they were vomited out of the land the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were killed with fire from heaven so why is it that you see people in other nations doing these same things and that does not happen now can you answer that I mean think about it the people of Israel came out of Egypt and this kind of punishment did not happen to the Egyptians the only reason that they suffered the plagues was to make them let the people of Israel go they were not being punished for abominations they weren't being punished for abominable sins but the people of Canaan of the nations of Canaan and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah were punished this way can you think of a reason why what is the difference Anybody? Okay, well, there is a difference. And it's not a difference of the people. It's a difference of where they were living. If they had been committing these sins, these same people have been committing these sins, say, in Africa somewhere, this probably would not have happened to them. Was it abomination? Yes. Is it forbidden by Hashem? Absolutely. Absolutely. Incest is absolutely forbidden. Bestiality is absolutely forbidden for everyone. Everyone. But the only reason that they were punished in this way is because the land of Israel is not like any other land. The land of Israel is, is holy. It is set apart as a holy place. Like the temple is a holy place in relation to the rest of the land of Israel there are levels of holiness and the land of Israel was set as a holy place from the very beginning of creation so the land of Israel could not abide this it's like a person who is used to very fine foods as compared to a person who is used to just regular or even very inferior foods and if both of these people were suddenly put into a situation where they had to eat off dirty plates and eat filthy food the person who was used to that kind of thing would be able to go ahead and do it and be fine the person who was used to very very fine foods would be maybe if he was very hungry could eat it but he wouldn't be able to keep it down he would, he would not be able to keep from vomiting it up and this is like the land of Israel the land of Israel is on a very high level of holiness this is what Hashem is saying 
the land of Israel cannot abide this kind of behavior. So the land itself spewed these people out. The land itself required an extra measure of justice for what was going on with these people. It did not mean that the people who live in another place are allowed to do those things. There's a difference here. If the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had lived in Asia somewhere or Africa somewhere and they've been doing those same things and believe me there are people in all, all places of the world who do those very same things and fire does not come down from heaven and consume them you know the land does not spew them, excuse me spew them out so this is a difference this is a difference of where they were and that's the explanation of why the people could not get away with that in the land of Israel and they had to they had to leave or they had to die because it could only tolerate it so long and they could not any longer does anybody have something to say about this I mean I'm doing all the talking and I'm not hearing anything from you does anyone have any questions about this because this is an area that really does affect, this really has something to say to B'nai Noach. You know, one of the laws of B'nai Noach is that you not participate in um, acts of immorality. And this is a definition of what immorality is. This is the definition from the Torah of immorality, of immoral acts. I mean, it's one thing for you to, to just be told, and like I said, um, a lot of times we'll just see a law and we think oh we know what that means we don't know what that means at all because it is very involved and the Torah comes with a lot of detail here of what is immorality and then you go straight from immorality into idolatry and that's right practicing idolatry it was also practicing idolatry and these things were all tied up together. That's why you have all of these forbidden acts. And then right after that you have, you shall not present any of your children to pass through for Moloch. Because those things were tied together. And the land could not abide that. It could not abide this immorality. But does that mean that, say, idolatry is okay in other parts of the world? that Hashem does not care about idolatry anywhere except in the land of Israel? No, that's not what that means. It just means that in the land of Israel, it is not tolerable. Right. Right, that's right. We don't have to do a holy war against idolatry, but it is important for people to understand, the people of the world to understand, that idolatry is forbidden. And why? So, so let me just go ahead and finish reading this. 
and you shall not lie with a man as one lies with a woman it is abomination now this is in our day and time not politically correct but this is the Torah yes and that's true too do not lie with any animal to be contaminated with it a woman shall not stand before an animal for mating it is perversion do not be contaminated through any of these for through all of these the nations that I expelled before you became contaminated the land became contaminated and I recalled its iniquity upon it and the land disgorged its inhabitants vomited them out but you shall safeguard my decrees and my judgments and not commit any of these abominations the native or the proselyte who lives among you for the inhabitants of the land who are before you committed these abominations and the land became contaminated let not the land disgorge you for having contaminated it as it disgorged the nation that was before you for if anyone commits any of these abominations the people doing so shall be cut off from among their people you shall safeguard by charge not to do any of the abominable traditions that were done before you and do not contaminate yourselves through them I am Hashem your God and that is the way that the Parsha of Ahremot ends so in Kiddushim okay there was one more thing I did want to talk about before I go on here and that is that sometimes we make the mistake of thinking and sometimes even Jewish people have made the mistake of thinking that the Torah is only talking about what we do but the Torah is talking about more than that it's also talking about our attitude and our thoughts that even our thoughts are important the Torah demands from us a loftier conduct while incest and adultery are obviously forbidden we're supposed to even be concerned about the adultery of our eyes and this is from Vaikra Rabbah 2312 so even what we see and even our thoughts we have to be concerned about that the Torah explicitly prohibits us from having immoral thoughts that even this is a sin so maybe you heard from another religion that <clears throat> this was a new thing that came was the idea of pure thoughts purity of thoughts and that if you had immoral thoughts that it was that it was a sin that it was the same as doing it but this is not this was not a new thing this is actually in the Torah this is in the the written Torah and it is in the oral Torah it's actually in the oral Torah that goes the extra it talks about the things that we do but even about thinking about it because what precedes doing something it's your thought and sometimes people think it doesn't matter what I think I can just fantasize and I can have fun in my mind and it doesn't matter as long as I don't do it well this isn't true not true at all we are held accountable also for our thoughts we're held accountable for our thoughts in the same way as we're held accountable for our deeds 
it does matter and this is Torah this is why the oral Torah is very very important because it expounds upon that that your thought life that the things that you see with your eyes things you read the things you think about that, that feed your thoughts because this is going to motivate you to action the first thing you do is think about it and then you act and so your thoughts are very important so we have to be careful where we allow our minds to wonder that we don't dwell upon things that are forbidden and that's important for all people because we need to think about it it just makes sense it's just common sense that if you guard your mind you guard what you bring into your mind then it's going to also be guarding your actions and you guard your speech your thoughts your speech and then it will guard your actions as well because we begin there we begin with thinking and the second thing we do is speaking and then the third thing the last thing we do is acting so if we guard from the very first thing from the thinking then we're going to be guarding ourselves against the sin of action now there was an, there was reference to the rituals of the priests of Moloch now the priests of Moloch there is a difference of opinion of as to exactly how that was carried out um, some opinion was that they would just build these fires and the children would be passed through and from the literal uh, sounding of the, of the wording of the verse it says passing your child through the fires it sounds like that like there were fires on either side and then the parent would just pass the child through and the child would not die but there are other opinions that yes the child was actually sacrificed and um, and that's probably probably the probably right Moloch was represented by the statue of a calf's face with outstretched human hands now it had several chambers in this statue and these were for uh, receiving various sacrifices and the innermost chamber was for a human sacrifice and so this was considered extremely abominable to Hashem that people would sacrifice their children and that the priests could threaten the parents in order to get them to be willing to do this and a person who would do this would be on a very very um, would be deserving of capital punishment so the sages teach that a Jew that delivers his not only one or, but, or several of his children but all well let me go back here so the Jews were warned not to deliver their children to Moloch and the sages teach that a Jew who delivered not only one or several of his children but all 
is exempted from capital punishment by the Beit Din. Now, how do we understand that? Capital punishment, and this is something that we have to really understand as we think about capital crimes, which a lot of which the laws of Noah, a lot of them are capital crimes. Capital punishment is ordained by the Torah for the sinner's benefit. Physical death expiates his sin, securing him a portion in the world to come. The crime of a Jew who delivered all his children to Moloch, however, is beyond atonement through mere physical death. His sin is branded itself so deeply into his soul that capital punishment cannot atone for him and therefore loses its purpose. So he will be purged by the suffering of Gehenna in the world to come. This is why a person who would give all of his children over to Moloch would be exempted by Vaitin from capital punishment because he's going to suffer something much, much worse is punishment in the next world. So we kind of have to shift our thinking about capital punishment and why Hashem, um, that it's a remedy, a remedy for sins that we commit. Now we're going to go to the next Parsha, and it's Kiddushim. And I told you, this is a lot of material. And so please be patient. Hashem spoke to to Moses, saying, Speak to the entire assembly of the children of Israel and say to them, You should be holy, for I am holy am I, Hashem, your God. So Hashem is saying to the people of Israel, you're supposed to be a holy people. And then, through this Parsha, he explains what this means. Every man, your mother and father, you shall revere, and my Sabbaths you shall observe. I am Hashem, your God. Do not turn to idols, molten gods you shall not make for yourselves. I am Hashem, your God. When you slaughter your feast, peace offerings to Hashem, you shall slaughter it to find favor for yourselves. On the day of your slaughter shall it be eaten, and on the next day, and whatever remains on the third day shall be burned in fire. But if it shall be eaten on the third day, it is rejected. It shall be. It shall not be accepted. Each of those who eat it will bear his iniquity, for what is sacred to Hashem has he desecrated, and that soul shall be cut off from his people. Now. In the beginning of this passage, we're, we're reading something that should sound very familiar. First, we read, You shall be holy, for I am holy. I, Hashem, your God. So what does this remind you of? It should remind you of the Ten Commandments. We have a reiteration in this Parsha of the Ten Commandments. The first one, of course, is... Um, the first commandment is, I am Hashem, your God. And so here in Parshat Kiddushim, it states, I am Hashem, your God. And then the second commandment, the Ten Commandments, is, you shall have no other gods. And in Parshat Kiddushim, in 19.4, we read, and do not make for yourselves molten gods. So we have like a reiteration of the Ten Commandments in this Parsha. The third commandment is, You shall not pronounce the name of, name of Hashem your God in vain. In Parshat Kiddushim, in the twelfth verse, 
we will get down to the 12th verse says you shall not swear falsely by my name thereby desecrating the name of your God I am Hashem in the, in the fourth commandment is remember the seventh day to sanctify it now um, in Parsh Kiddushim of course we had that in the third verse but also we have it again in the 13th verse Mm-mm. you shall not swear falsely you shall not teach your fellow it's in the third verse and keep my comm- uh, my Sabbaths you shall observe and the, the fifth commandment is honor your father and mother and here in the very first part it says every man your father and mother shall you revere the sixth commandment you shall not murder in Parshat Kedushim in the sixteenth verse it says you shall not stand by the blood of your fellow man now it's interesting because the sixteenth verse begins with you shall not be a gossip monger there, you shall not be a gossip monger among your people you shall not stand aside while your fellow's blood is shed I am Hashem and we're going to talk about this in a little bit in more detail the seventh commandment is you shall not commit adultery and in Parshat Kedushim in chapter 20 verse 10 says the adulterer and adulteress shall surely be put to death the eighth commandment you shall not steal in Parshat Kedushim see these are not in order uh, like they are in the ten commandments it says you shall not steal the ninth commandment is you shall not bear false witness against your fellow man in Parshat Kedushim in 1916 says you shall not go about as a talebearer, or you shall not be a gossip monger among your people the tenth commandment is you shall not covet in Parshat Kedushim it's very interesting the way it is said is you shall love your fellow man as yourself so we're going to go into these a little bit more in in detail now remember we were talking about earlier about thought processes and and how we speak what we say and how this leads to action so immorality in deed and even in thought creates a spirit of impurity the spirit of impurity in the person's own heart and in the world at large and so this is one of the reasons that Hashem is saying be holy as I am holy and he's telling the people how so he's saying to them if you want to be if you want to attach yourself to me this is something we should all think about if we want to attach ourselves to Hashem then we have to know what he's like we have to study what is Hashem like and we have to want to be more like Hashem ourselves now the first thing that we come to is this idea about respecting our parents this is the very first part of the Parsha man respects his mother and father so that's what our Parsha says on the other hand the Ten Commandments says honor your father and mother you notice that difference of those two words 
there are two different words used in the Torah. So what is the difference between respect and honor? Now respect means, and the first thing is, it says respect his mother and father. So mother comes first when it's respect. So respect means not contradicting not contradicting your parents' words. Not sitting in their special seat. This is something that a lot of times people don't understand the subtlety of that. You're not trying if you sit in your parents' seat, what are you doing? What is the symbolism of that? like you're trying to take his place so you're not usurping his place you're respecting him as being in that position in the home this is why it's very important that children be taught from the time they're small this is your father's chair this is his special place you don't sit there because this is his even if he's not home you don't sit there because this is his you give him this honor it's his honor of this is his place. And this is how we show respect. And my honor, and this is what it says in the, in the Ten Commandments in the book of Exodus. By honoring the person, by honoring our parents, and this is honor your father and mother, we see to it that our parents are provided for. Now, why is it that when it says respect, we say the mother first. And when it says honor, we say the father first. Well, when we respect our, it's harder. It's the one that is harder to respect that comes first. And it's the one that's harder to honor that comes first. Now the father has a, just normally commands respect. He normally commands I mean, without even saying it, without even pushing, the child has a natural tendency to respect him. But maybe not so much with the mother, because she's softer. She's a softer touch. And so that's the reason that Hashem puts the mother first and says, respect her. Respect her, but also respect your parents, your father. And honoring, you know, this is like loving. It's like you're going to take care of them, and so on. You are more naturally inclined to have a softer heart and love your mother as a rule. And so that's why the father comes first when it's honor. That we're going to take care of him as well as the mother when in their old age and so on. The child's natural tendency to hold the mother in this esteem. So there is a midrash about one of Yaakov's sons named Naphtali. Naphtali was known for being very swift. And why was he very swift? He was very swift in running to do things for his father. And so he was blessed by Yaakov as the hind sent forth because he would run to do his father's bidding. He would run to do things to please his father. And so his father also said of him, he gives good words. So he was rewarding him in two ways. He merited a portion in Eretz Israel whose fruits matured swiftly because he ran to do his father's bidding. So his fruits matured swiftly in the area of the north. 
I think Anna lives in that area. Or you live in the area of Naphtali or um, Issachar. Maybe Issachar. And another reason, another way that he was rewarded was that during the, it was during the period of the judges. Um, that from him came the prophetess Deborah and the general Barak. And so when the Jews were oppressed by the, Can- uh, the Canaanites, the people of Naphtali went swiftly to carry out the war against against Sisera. So then it's interesting that this command to um, give respect to your parents, give respect to his mother and father, in the same sentence ends with, you shall keep my Shabbat, for I am God. And this ending teaches us that a child must ignore his parents' wish. Uh, This is an exception. That he must ignore his parents' wish if they want him to transgress the Torah. If they want him to, for instance, violate Shabbat. Because this is like one of the main observances. If they tell him that he has to violate Shabbat, then this is an area of command that says, honor your parents, to respect your parents, unless this. So studying the Torah and honoring your honoring Hashem, honoring the Shabbat even takes precedence over honoring your father and mother. And another thing that is so interesting about um, honoring your parents is that you have this heavenly measure for measure, Mida connected Mida, is that you remember when Yaakov went away from his parents to live in the house of Levan? He was gone for 22 years. Then when Yosef was absent from his father after being kidnapped, it was exactly that, 22 years before Yaakov heard from Yosef. So there is, this is one of those areas where we receive back what we, this is an example of how we receive back what we give out if we don't honor our parents then there is a chance that our children are not going to honor us in some way some way that it is similar okay so then we come down to we come to the next one about um, idolatry cults and religions Um, so we're told not to turn to idols and this is in the fourth verse 19.4 do not turn to idols and molten gods that shall make yours for yourselves I am Hashem your God so here the idols are termed Elilim which is one of the names of idols now strange gods in the Tanakh are known by ten names in the Bible there are ten different Hebrew names that talk of, uh, that refer to idols. Now this one refers to the emptiness, 
the hollowness, how they have no power. Then there is the word pestilene, which means hewn images, images that are um, hewn out of stones. And then there are there's the misachot, um, the ones that are poured, the molten images. And then the matzavot, which are the standing, immobile statues that are standing. And atzavim are idols that are assembled from different parts. And teraphim, you're, you're familiar with that from the book of Genesis. It comes from the word ripayon, which means decay, because they will eventually decay. And we went into that when we were talking about Levon. Um, Gilulim implies that they're abhorrent. Shikutzim means that they're despicable. Hamamim refers to the sun worshippers who face the sun. This is the worship of the sun as a god. And then the Ashtarot were trees erected by moon worshippers. So these are all the different terms that the Tanakh uses at various times and they have different um, implications of what exactly the people were doing. And all of them were considered were abominations. All of them were forbidden by Hashem, by the Torah. And so whenever it talks about a prohibition against idolatry, it's not talking about just one. It's talking about all of these things. All ten of these things. So, to be very careful against idolatry, there are also prohibitions. And this is something that's very important for all of us to know. It's forbidden for us to gaze at idols. Like Sometimes people go sightseeing in a foreign country. Like if you go in Thailand... There are idols everywhere. And the idols are part of the sites that people go to see. So it's forbidden to gaze at them at a statue that people worship. We shouldn't just stand and gaze at it. One should not arrange a rendezvous saying, meet me by this and this idolatrous statue. That's also forbidden. That's also considered um, idolatry that you're giving honor to this idol. And we may not pay mental attention to any subject that is included in the category of idolatry. So this is um, telling us that it's very dangerous for us even to um, study about other religions. I mean, it can be very dangerous because we're giving attention to this subject we're, we're concentrating our thoughts on this subject and it does sully our souls so we have to be very careful with that and the main thing is the main thing that we have to remember is that the one sole purpose of the creation of man is to serve his maker so any of these things that take us away from that one sole purpose are diverting us from the, our whole purpose in the world
So the next thing is there is a prohibition against stealing. Well, this is, of course, in the Ten Commandments, but it's reiterated here. You shall not steal. Now, in the Ten Commandments, when it talks about theft, it's specifically talking about kidnapping. It's talking about stealing a person. So this is the reason that in the Ten Commandments, the sin of theft that it's speaking of there is actually a capital crime. Kidnapping is a capital crime. But being a thief of an object is not, according to the Torah, is not a capital crime. If a person stole something, if a Jew stole something, and he was observed by two witnesses, he had to refund double what he had stolen. He had to refund what he had stolen, and then he had to refund back the value of the property. So it was paying double because he'd also vexed the person now there are various things that we have to realize about what what constitutes theft now I really encourage everybody to attend Adam's class on Saturday Adam's class on Saturday is going to be um, let me go to that going to be at 11 o'clock a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And he's going to be speaking on the seven laws. And it's going to be in segments of 13 weeks each. And, at, and one of those segments is going to be on specifically on theft, what constitutes theft. But like I said, in the Ten Commandments, what constitutes theft is kidnapping. Now, just like the subject of immorality, if you would think about it, you were guilty. Well, theft is also, it has these shades. Another way that we are guilty of theft, for instance, and we wouldn't even think about it, is to say we're careless with other people's belongings. You know, we think, oh, well, it doesn't matter. I can use this however I want. We're careless with other people's belongings. That's a form of theft. And we have to be very meticulous. We have to be meticulous about that, that we don't inadvertently um, like pay, pick up some, even a small thing, and say, like at your, you're at your office, you say, oh, well, I think I need this pen at home, so I'm going to take it home with me. Is that your pen? It's not your pen. It belongs to the company. And so even that is theft. The sages were, I mean, the, um, the fathers are the Avot were very very careful when they were sojourning in the land when there were no fences there were no borders it was not obvious but they were very careful they muzzled their animals so that they would not go and graze in someone else's field 
because they realized that was theft. So that our forefathers were even careful to that extent. When Ruvain went out to the fields at harvest time and he wanted to pick flowers for his mother, he picked what we call Dudanim. Dudanim. And what is this? This is a flower or a plant that was considered growing wild and was totally considered ownerless. That he was very careful that what he was picking did not belong to someone else. And so he is praised for this. He's praised that he was very careful that he did not encroach on another person's property. So now we're going to go to the next thing. And that is, um, you shall not steal, you shall not deny falsely, and you shall not lie to one another. So we're supposed to be very meticulous in money matters. It's all tied up together. Being honest in our dealings with each other, loving each other as we love ourselves, all tied up together with how do we want to be treated that we treat another person in the same way so money matters we're supposed to be we're supposed to be very careful Um, excuse me for just a moment Um, just a moment Excuse me for that interruption. I apologize. Another way that we have to be careful about theft is about time. When we steal someone else's time, we promise that we'll be there at a certain time and the person is waiting for us. I mean, there are a lot of ways that can be considered theft that we don't really think of as theft. But there are a lot of ways that can be considered theft. So we need to be very sensitive to this subject. And another thing is about being honest with our words, being honest with what we say to each other. And this is the next part of that verse, is being careful about not swearing falsely, not taking a false oath, that we are very, very careful that we're speaking truthfully to another person. Sometimes people say, well, for uh, peace between people, it doesn't matter if we lie. Hey, we can stretch that to a point where it matters. And that becomes nothing but an excuse. And then it becomes too convenient. It becomes too um, habitual for us to be saying things that aren't true. And we we can comfort ourselves by saying, oh, well, it's just to keep peace and all that. But it's not. That's an excuse. So we have to be careful in how we deal with other people. Would we want somebody to lie to us? Would we want somebody to be careless with our belongings? No. So each one of those times we have to consider, how would I feel if it were me? 
And then we come to the next part of that verse, which is taking a false oath. And in the Ten Commandments it says, Do not pronounce the name of Hashem your God in vain. And what this is also, what this is really referred to, is take a, say, for instance, say a blessing. And we don't mean it. If we say a prayer, I mean, there are a lot of people who will say prayers and they will make great statements and all this, and they don't really mean it. So essentially what they're doing is they are taking Hashem's name in vain. And this is a very serious, serious matter. And um, you shall not cheat your fellow. You shall not rob. A worker's wage shall not remain with you overnight until morning. And this is, a, this is an area where um, people are supposed to be very, very meticulous. If you hire somebody and you say, I will pay you this certain amount of money, you owe them that money. You owe that person that money. I know one time when I was in Israel, I had gone to work for a couple and um, I was on my way home. I had left because I wanted to make sure I caught the bus. And as I was walking down the street, my cell phone rang and it was this man. And he said to me, you left before I could pay you. And I said, oh, well, I was really in a hurry because I wanted to catch this bus. And he said, but you don't understand. I owed you this money for working for me this day. This money is yours. It doesn't belong to me. I'm not supposed to hold this money. It's yours. But I didn't want to go back because I would miss my bus. And I lived way in the Shamron, and this was in Yerushalayim. It was in Jerusalem. And it was a cold night. And so I said, well, I really don't want to miss my bus, and I don't want to come back. So then he did something I thought was really amazing. He said, okay, this money is yours. I'm holding it in keeping for you. And I realized he was making a statement. He was making a statement that was according to the Torah. And I had a lot of respect for this man for this because he was being very, very meticulous about property that actually belonged to me. He was very, being very, very meticulous that he was making a statement to me and even before Hashem that he was going to safeguard that money that belonged to me as being just like a, um, like a safeguard, like a, like a caretaker of that money but a person has to normally be very careful not to do that not to hold money overnight and he was trying to observe that Torah commandment to the letter meticulously so I have a lot of respect for this man not everybody is that careful but the Torah does command us to be just that careful so the Torah has a lot of commandments about um, about theft, and it gets very, very detailed about what is theft, what it involves, what it what it entails, and every single one of these details. The bottom line is that you are caring for the feelings and for the well-being of the other. This is what it's all about. 
that we're making sure that we do not encroach upon this other person. We're safeguarding his very life. We see it like that. We're seeing it correctly. We're safeguarding his very livelihood. That's why it's so important. Now in the 14th verse of the 19th chapter, we read, Do not curse the deaf, and do not place a stumbling block before the blind. You shall fear God. I am Hashem. Now this is something that seems to be self-evident. Of course you're not going to, to put a stumbling block before a blind person and make them fall down. I mean that seems to be self-evident. But the literal meaning of that verse is not what the verse really means. You shall not curse the deaf. You shall not put a stumbling block before the blind. Now, if you were to be talking about somebody in in behind their backs, as we say, talking about somebody where they could not hear you, would not that be the same thing as cursing the deaf? That would be the same thing. Because this person could not hear. So you would think, well, it doesn't make any difference. But it does make a difference. Because the Torah is saying, do not curse the deaf. You would not want that done to you. So do not do that to the other person. And placing a stumbling block before the blind, what that really means is causing somebody to fall. And this does not necessarily mean physically. For instance, giving bad advice to somebody. That's one thing. But there are other ways. Other ways that a person um, would could be considered putting a stumbling block before the blind and causing it's like for instance causing a person to sin a parent is prohibited to hit his adult child why? because if he if he ridicules this child if he hits this child or something he could provoke that child into dishonoring him and Shalom hitting him back maybe he would provoke him into sin a parent when we're told um, honor your father and mother there is also this prohibition of putting a stumbling block before the blind is the other side of that that the parent is also responsible also responsible for guarding that child to be able to honor him he should not give him reason to dishonor him. So it's a two-edged thing. You see what I'm saying? And the Torah gives gives this in two different commandments. Honor your father and mother is the on the child's side. But on the parent's side, it's do not put a stumbling block before the blind. Because a child is like an ignorant... He's a child. He's coming up. And even if he's an adult, he may be ignorant in areas. Or even if he's not it may be very, very difficult for him to honor you 
if you are ridiculing him or if you are causing him um, pain, if you're abusing him. So this is on the parent's side. If the parent has done this to him, he is guilty of putting a stumbling block in front of the blind. Now, if a person, and, and here's another, uh, another example. If a person is going to lend money to somebody, he needs to either have a written receipt for that money or he needs to do it in front of witnesses. Why? Because if he does not, he sets up a situation in which the other person could be tempted to either by forgetting he borrowed it or, you know, we, we don't want to say he would purposely do that. Maybe he would forget so you you put safeguards and this is the safeguards there are a lot of Torah commandments that are like that that are safeguards and this commandment about not putting a stumbling block before the blind involves like that that you don't loan a person money in such a way that he could forget and not pay you back and then be guilty of theft or something like this so you just guard this. So, there's a story. Um, well, we don't have enough time for that. So I'm going to just skip over that and go on. Now there's a, um, a prohibition against tailbearing. And this is in 1916. You shall not be a gossip monger among your people. Now what happens? When a person tells, we call it Lashon Hara, when he speaks evil against a person, it's like murder. And the very next part of that verse is, you shall not stand aside while your fellow's blood is shed. It's the same thing, because what do we do? If we speak evil against a person, we are killing his reputation. We could kill his livelihood. We could change his life in such a way that he would he would feel like his life was over. People would look at him differently. And the thing is, is once that has happened, once those words are out there, there's no bringing them back. So, being a talebearer actually isn't talking about lying about someone. Lying about somebody is what we said before, speaking an untruth. Being a talebearer is bringing an evil report about something that would be something true. Like, oh, I heard about this, that this guy did this, and he, you know, and you're talking. And it hurts that person. And so again, how this, how this ends is that we're supposed to think of the other person as we would feel ourselves. How would we feel if it were us being spoken of like this? How would that make us feel? How would it make us feel if the opinion of all of our friends changed about us? And if we can connect with that other person in such a way that we can feel their pain, 
how that would hurt that person it would prevent us from doing it because it's very hard if, if your friends all of your friends in your circle suddenly look at you differently your life has changed there has been a death if your life changes and you have to move you know maybe move away or or move to a different circle of friends because your former friends don't want to have anything to do with you I mean this is sort of um, like it's not just when you're a child it's all through your life that you have a peer group and your friends have certain opinion of you but if somebody goes over here and he says oh I heard this and this and this about this person then it's going to change the opinion of your friends especially if it's true I mean if you can go to the to your friends and say oh well that's not true that's one thing but what if it's true and this is tail bearing and then you have to make an explanation well you shouldn't have to make an explanation this is tail bearing and this is forbidden by the Torah it is considered the same as shedding blood and last week we spoke about the sin uh, the sin the main sin that caused uh, leprosy and that's right it says uh, the Hafez time did say that that it kills the one who spoke about it the one spoken to and the speaker himself that's true so we were talking about last week the disease of leprosy and that leprosy the person who would become a leper was, a, was considered like a dead person and what they were receiving upon themselves by being in this category of being an outcast and like a dead person was measure for measure for what they had committed for the sin they had committed because what they had done by slandering this other person by speaking evil against this other person was like murder and so it came back so this is coming back on the speaker and he becomes a leper and he becomes like he he gave out death his words were death they came out of his mouth and then he becomes like dead and he causes a rift because of his speaking evil then he becomes ostracized himself he is cast out of the camp so this was last week that we talked about I mean, the, the Parsha was about um, the leprosy. And it was this very subject. And then the, the second part of that is not to stand by the blood of your fellow, not to stand by the blood of your brother. Now, if a person is able to save another's life, he is obligated to do so. Obligated to do so if however his own life would be in danger if he were to try to save this other person's life like for instance running in a burning building and the building is falling down you're not obligated to do that if a person is drowning and you don't know how to swim don't jump in there to try to save him because you would die too but if you do know how to swim you should and another thing if a person um, if you can save a person's life then 
prohibitions of Torah are set aside. Like for instance, a man is not supposed to touch a woman. But if a woman is drowning and he can save her, he should jump in and save her. He should touch her to bring her to safety. So these things are set aside for saving of a life. Now another thing that I think is very, very important that I want us to talk about, and this is in um, the 17th verse. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall reprove your fellow and not bear a sin because of him. This is a very important concept, not to hate your brother in your heart. This means that you're not supposed to hate somebody in secret. And this is the epitome of hypocrisy. You know people who go around and they smile and they act like they're, they're all friendly to you, but then behind your back they're saying, oh, I hate that guy. I can't stand that guy. Well, this is forbidden by the Torah. If you have a problem with a person, first thing you should do is look inside yourself and say, why do I have a problem with that person? That's the first thing you should do. You should not pretend that you like him when you don't. I mean, this is just, it's, it's a very serious thing. But the first thing you should do is to try to set that straight within yourself. You're forbidden to hold a grudge. You're forbidden to um, treat a person, dislike somebody for no reason. But you're supposed to work this out with yourself. When we look at the bedtime Shema, we're supposed to forgive each person that we had held anything against or, or somebody who had something against us, who had done something to offend us. You're supposed to at least try to forgive that person before you go to sleep. Make your accounts short. Don't hold on to things. Don't wait on things. Because it builds up and it becomes harder. It's a whole lot easier if we let go of it quickly. And this is the advantage to the bedtime Shema. If you have a Siddur and you read that, you'll see that it says even in this lifetime or any other anybody who has offended me in any way whatsoever but first of all it's going to be this day this day who has offended me and that's very good Anna the definition of hating your brother is to not talk to him for three days but what if you know a lot of people I mean <laughs> but if you um yeah, that's good. And again, we would we would have to understand that in the sense that it's said and not in a literal sense because there are a lot of people that we can't talk to every day. If you know a lot of people, it's difficult to talk to them every day. But to just hold that in your heart that we you you intend that you will not talk to that person. Right. But what I'm saying is, like, if you have this where you give somebody the silent treatment, you know, this is an indication of a grudge. And I'm trying to kind of um, hurry up a little bit. And if somebody has done something that you know is wrong, and you see that person doing something wrong, what are we supposed to do? The first thing we're supposed to do is to go to that person 
And this is according to the Torah right here. You shall reprove your fellow and not bear a sin because of him. If you see somebody is doing something wrong, then you are supposed to say to him in a loving way, not in a sarcastic way, but in a loving way, that he is doing something wrong. And if you do not do it, then the Torah is saying that you bear a sin because of him. That this is upon, this is on you. His blood is on you, essentially, if you do not reprove him for doing something that is wrong. Now, there are exceptions, of course. This is only for somebody who is observant of the Torah, somebody who is a righteous person and is going to listen. If a person is a scoffer, now we're told in um, Proverbs 9.8, Do not reprove a scoffer, lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. So, if you are, if a person is a an evil person and he's a scoffer you're wasting your words and you're not expected to reprove this person okay and like I said I'm I'm trying to hurry up here so And of course, if you are reproving somebody, this should be done in private, not in public. You should always be very, very careful of the person's feelings and not be um, using that as an excuse to um, berate him. It should be done in a very loving way. Now, sometimes people say that they don't want to reprove someone else because they won't listen to him because he's guilty of it himself. He's probably guilty of things himself. So, this is a reason why we should be careful to examine our own hearts before we do this, before we reprove someone else, and to be careful of our own um, observance of Torah. And ultimately, ultimately, all of this and I didn't get into um, the last part of the Parsha, but ultimately all of these things are come to tell us that we should love our fellow as ourselves. And this is all of it in a nutshell. There's a story of um, a non-Jewish person who came to the sage Shammai and he asked him to convert him to Judaism on the condition that he could be taught the whole Torah while he stood on one foot. And Shammai thought he was a scoffer and told him, Get out of my sight, you horrible person, you just go away. So then the man went to the Beit Midrash of Hillel and he asked him the same thing. Asked him to convert him and tell him the whole Torah while he stood on one foot. And so Hillel said to him, Okay, I'll accept you as a convert. And the whole Torah is this. Whatever is hateful to you, do not do it to another. And the rest is all all explanation of this principle. So go and study. So Halil actually taught the convert 
the negative side of that. The positive side of that, of course, is to do things for another person that you would want done for yourself. But this is a compli- more complicated than the negative. So he taught him the negative side. And this is it in a nutshell. All of these things that we've been discussing in Kiddushim and even in Akhremot, but mostly in Kiddushim, about conduct between a person and his fellow man is loving your fellow as yourself. And we began in Akhremot talking about Yom Kippur. And when the Jewish people come to Yom Kippur, the first thing that we have to do is go to another person and ask their forgiveness. We have to set things right between ourselves and our fellow man before we can come to Hashem and set things right with Him. We have to have this world balanced before we can think that we are going to have our relationship with Hashem balanced and in good standing. So I hope that everybody has enjoyed this class. I'm sorry I did not really get to finish all of it. Like I said, it was a lot of material. But um, I kind of ran over a little bit. And Anna is in the classroom. And I'm going to now hand the mic over to her. And I really thank all of you for being in the classroom with me. And I invite you to join me, join us again. Um, we're going to have more classes on Wednesday. Uh, today is, uh, yeah, tomorrow is Jack Saunders class. And then on um, Thursday at 7 o'clock Central Time, 8 o'clock Eastern Time, we're going to be replaying the class that was was given in the morning from Israel. And so I invite all of you to come into the classroom at um, 8 o'clock Central Time. Wait a minute.